Song number 58 was asked that we mark that, and certainly as we're gathered together this evening, as Brother Allen mentioned a few moments ago, we have an excellent attendance tonight, and we're so thankful that we've each been blessed with health and capability to arrive and to come, and that we've had the desire of mind to be here. There are so many congregations of whom you and I both are aware, for which there seems to be a great characteristic of so few return for the evening services or for the Bible study hours. And here at Pippin, we're certainly delighted to see the desire of heart and mind, the eagerness and earnestness that makes people wish to be here for the services. We know, of course, that most importantly, the God of heaven takes note of that as well, and it's our honor and our desire to make sure that we please Him. This evening, as was announced just a few moments ago, by bringing our attention, Brother Matt did, to that reading in Galatians chapter 1, we come to the next element or the next book in our study on our Sunday evening lessons. We began some time ago to give some thought to those particular books that the Bible bowlers are also studying. And those particular year, those two New Testament books are 1 Corinthians and Galatians. We have to this point studied through the book of 1 Corinthians, highlighting those 16 chapters, casting the spotlight on at least a few of the major elements in, in those chapters. But of course, the book of Galatians comes up before us tonight. At this time, of course, it's also true those puzzles are available. So if you didn't get a chance to pick up one, I think today's was a review over all of the book of 1 Corinthians. So it might uh, test your recollection, your memory about some of what you've learned. But beginning next week, the puzzles will, of course, deal with Galatians. And tonight, we get to begin that study as well as we look at the opening chapter of this book. The book of Galatians, as you can see on that slide before you, is the second one. And those who were directors, I suppose, of the Bible Bowl saw some correspondences between Galatians and 1 Corinthians, or at the very least thought that the study of those together would in fact be a, be a good thing. As you and I come to this next point on our slide, our studies tonight, may we in fact begin a brief series of introductory thoughts to the book of Galatians. We did this as we looked at 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, and I thought it would be fair to attempt the same this evening. Each one of the books of the New Testament has, of course, its own unique history, has its own unique set of circumstances in which it was written, but each one is the inspired, infallible Word of God, and each one presents truths that are needful and important for us to understand. The same, of course, is true of Galatians. The book only has six chapters, and thus it's really not that lengthy. As you'll notice on this slide, a few interesting features might be attempted by us to familiarize ourselves with it. To begin, here's a map of the modern Middle Eastern part of the world. You'll recognize, if you're able to at least read some of the names on that map, nations like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran... You'll even appreciate up near the top left the word Turkey. And you and I recognize that that particular nation is one that's well appreciated. It often takes center stage in world affairs. And many times individuals, as they are involved in affairs in that country, in fact, make news even here. As you notice, though, where that country of Turkey is, that is, in fact, the location of an ancient placement that, of course, is that place of Asia Minor. Let me go back to that previous slide, if I might, for just a moment. Uh, 
Again, that ancient era, that's modern-day Turkey, was in that era of the long ago recognized as Asia Minor. You'll notice a few other thoughts that I chose to include there might be additionally helpful to us as we give thought to it. That area, that particular region, was one, as you can well tell, that actually serves as the background or the backdrop for much of the book of Acts, especially the missionary journeys, especially certain parts from all oh, about halfway through the book onward. But not only that, it also serves as a powerful history for many of the New Testament books that follow. It is for that reason that perhaps the settlement and the characteristics of that area might be useful. Again, Asia Minor, you'll notice it had been settled many, many centuries before by individuals that had migrated from what you and I would recognize as Western Europe. The area of France, the area of Belgium, the area of even portions of Germany. As they had migrated to this distant place and settled in there, they came to be known as Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. You probably can see some correspondence to the name of the book, Galatians, Gauls. As you give thought to these Gauls, one interesting thing about it is that from ancient era, they tended to have characteristics like this. They tended to be rather easily swayed. They tended to be easily convinced. They tended to be rather unsteady and unsettled. Anybody that came along, it seems they'd be willing to believe them. They'd be willing to give them attention. They'd be willing to accept what they had to say. And so these Gauls, as you can see on that slide, they tended to be easily influenced. In fact, that brings us to the next observation. What about their recognition of the gospel? On the first missionary journey, Paul, the apostle, came in the following, as the following map will attempt to highlight... Here is a map, a picture showing the first missionary journeys. If you're able to read that, you'll notice that the cities are in fact numbered and it shows the order in which Paul visited these locations. May I say to you, the word Galatia is really about the top middle portion of the map. And as you notice that area, Paul on that first journey passed apparently just south of the Galatian area. He did so as he passed through Lycaonia as well as Pisidia. But as the, at least the book of Acts points it out, it doesn't tell us he actually ventured into Galatia. At least as far as the Holy Spirit has told us, we do not know whether he did, so we certainly mustn't assume that he did. But you'll notice on that first journey, was there perhaps some word that did make it into Galatia that here was a new message, here was a new theory, a new set of presentations? Perhaps so. But might we say that all of that certainly came to fruition on the second missionary journey. Here's another map showing the highlights of that one. The book of Acts in chapter 16 verse 6 directly informs us now that Paul on the second journey passed through Galatia. We are informed then that he did in fact not only pass near it, he literally passed through this area. In fact, this, this was the very location in which he came to recognize or at least Timothy joined him on his later missionary journeys. As all of that's unfolded in Acts the 16th chapter, you'll notice on this map the word Galatia is written at an angle. So you notice it sits perhaps just to the north of the center section of this region of Asia Minor. It is for those reasons that these Galatians were thus individuals about whom this book will tell us much. 
I mentioned a moment ago that these Gauls were easily influenced. When they heard the gospel, it would appear that they responded to it with power. They responded to it with enthusiasm and with eagerness. They responded to it by openly accepting the great things that Paul had to share with them. All of that tells us again that it does seem to match our understanding of these people. You'll also notice, though, that these Gauls, as they accepted those things, the nature of this preaching, this new gospel that Paul presented to them, it also points out to us that they seemingly began to accept some other things as well. For you see, after Paul had labored amongst this people for a while, preaching to them, helping to establish them, the time came Paul moved elsewhere. He went to preach in other regions and other areas. He continued his labors to carry out, of course, the Great Commission. After he left, there were some other preachers that came into the area. I say other preachers. These were not as sound as Paul was, and these, in fact, were very greatly bothersome to these Galatian individuals. As these other preachers came into the area, here were some things about what they were sharing. After Paul departed, these others began to teach a different gospel. They taught something distinct. They taught something that was not the same as what Paul had preached. And what they preached was this, that in order for one to be accepted before God, in order for one to in fact receive the benefits of this gospel of Christ, one must in addition maintain a strong connection to the law of Moses. For instance, you still needed to understand circumcision and to comply with it. You still needed to appreciate the needfulness of much of at least the principles of the law of Moses in order to receive the benefits of the gospel of Christ. As these teachers thus were setting those ideas forth, they were somewhat putting together, they were meshing the gospel with the law of Moses. And in that effort, Paul wrote this Galatian book to them, in which he set forth in six rather scintillating chapters the error of these things that they were now hearing from these other teachers. The problems associated with it and the fact that it was never intended by God to be that way. Perhaps for those reasons, look at these other comments. One of the great questions that still surrounds the book of Galatians is this, when did Paul write it? I frankly confess, if you look at various supposed scholars, you find different answers to that question. It apparently is a very unsettled issue. Some will state it was as early as the early part of the sixth decade, about 51 or 52 A.D., Others will say it was much later that decade, more like 57, maybe even early 58 A.D. I don't know when it was written. This much we know it was inspired. God saw forth to preserve it by the Holy Spirit, and whenever it was written, it met the needs of those Galatian individuals. It met the power and characteristic of that which was their error at that time. And perhaps by inspiration we can easily see that those same characteristics, at least at times, can be so helpful to us as well. One of the things that makes this book additionally unique is this. Quite often in the books that Paul wrote, it of course was addressed to a specific individual at times like Timothy or like Titus, or at other times it was written to a specific congregation like the church at Colossae or perhaps the church of the Thessalonians. This one was written to the churches of Galatia, plural. 
To my knowledge, the only one of the Pauline epistles written with that kind of a heading. It was written to a, the group of churches, however many there were, in the faith in the area of Galatia. With that, look at an outline very briefly. What could be stated to be the major thrust in order of Paul's presentation? The first ten verses in many ways are a prologue. Paul in that set of verses sets forth the nature of the initial problem that he faced and he in fact seeks to correct them almost immediately. I stated it as a denunciation. But following that, beginning at verse number 10 or really verse 11 of that chapter and extending really through all of the next chapter, Paul sets forth that great doctrine that attaches, as you can see, to an authentication of himself. After he defends his own apostleship, in the next couple of chapters, he sets forth that great doctrine of justification by faith of Christ. Finally, as the book closes, practical interests, namely, what does this gospel mean daily as we seek to live by it? And finally, in the last chapter, some closing admonitions in verses 11 to 18. As we work our way through Galatians over the next few Sunday evenings, we will next Sunday evening come to chapters 2 and 3 for tonight. What about the rest of chapter 1? I mentioned a moment ago this opening set of remarks as well as a denunciation, but what about considering the nature of that more fully, looking at it in somewhat more detail? That brings me to this slide. May I ask, isn't it interesting the way that Paul chose to begin the Galatian letter? There are some others in which he takes a number of verses to introduce himself, to introduce those to, that were perhaps his companions. Galatians, it wasn't so. Almost immediately it reads like this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Easy to notice that here early on in the book in verse 4 is a very interesting statement, isn't it? Jesus is the key. It is He who has delivered us from this present evil world. And isn't it interesting that Paul even then made note that the world had such evil influences and that this world among which they lived, and you and I as well, offers such a source for ungodliness and a source for iniquity and a source to lead one astray. Who is it that's delivered us from this present evil world? Is it our mentality our ingenious character, our creativity, by no means. Doesn't it remind us a little bit about those opening remarks of Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4? According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter spoke in such brilliant terms and tones about those who had escaped those lusts of this world, the presentness and the characteristic thereof. Today you and I have a means and a mode of escape as well. It's the same one mentioned here. It's Christ Jesus that delivers us from this. 
that delivery is highlighted in ways you can notice next. Beginning in verse number 6, Paul was astonished at something. We often might appreciate that the inspired apostle found himself having been witness to so much. Paul had seen brethren turn against him. He had seen those who in fact would try to take his own life. He had witnessed individuals near and far by the characteristic of the way they chose to live. Of the Galatians, Paul was astonished at something. Beginning in verse 6, Paul wrote, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. We immediately observe again the nature of these people. They had so quickly accepted the gospel, but they were so quickly now abandoning it. They were so quickly turning aside from it. Paul's language is very telling, isn't it? First, Paul marveled. He found himself in a state of astonishment that these individuals who had showed so much kindness to him on that second missionary journey, who in fact had lavished him in many ways, assisting him with problems that he was experiencing. For those reasons, Paul felt very keenly and strongly about them. Now they were abandoning the faith. They were apostatizing. They were turning their back upon the very Christ who had washed their sins away. They were leaving the gospel, it seems, as quickly as they had accepted it. And again, note the fickleness, the easy way in which they could be so, so carefully convinced. It is for those reasons that some of these comments come before us. Not only was Paul astonished, he was astonished in verse 6 that you're so soon removed. That word removed literally means to set to the side of. It means to abandon. They were leaving the gospel behind them. They were accepting what these false teachers had to say. They were accepting what they were setting forth as it related to circumcision, the law of Moses and otherwise. And in that characteristic, they were listening to these perversions. Perversions? That's in in a way the word Paul used, isn't it? Note again the language of verse 7, "...which is not another." You and I noticed that Paul's language was so very carefully stated, wasn't it? Verse 6, another gospel, and then he quickly identifies the fact which is not another. We still live now 20 centuries later, often beneath the characteristic in question, how many gospels are there? How many faiths are there? How many opportunities and thoroughfares is there before one can be correct and right before God? Is that number left to human ingenuity? The uniqueness of the gospel is taught here as plainly as anywhere, isn't it? That uniqueness set forth in such clear ways. As you look forward with me to what he says next, we'll develop this thought more carefully by practicality in just a moment. He says, But there be some that would pervert the gospel. That word pervert means to twist to turn into what it was not intended to be, 
to rest, W-R-E-S-T, those are all ideas and meanings we attach so readily to this phrase, to this usage. And then he says, though we, or an angel from heaven, we notice here that even if another apostle, one of the, uh, those that Paul himself had labored along with, be it Peter, Andrew, James, John, any number of the others, if any of them had started preaching some message other than the gospel, even he was to be considered anathema. Even he was to be considered accursed. Furthermore, you'll notice this great legacy was lifted to an even higher plateau. What about an angel? One who had the privilege and prerogative of encircling the very throne of God. What if an angel began to proclaim, to support, to encourage, to indoctrinate by some means other than the gospel of Christ? Ought that be accepted? Ought it be considered? Ought it be defended? Listen again to Paul's language. Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel than that which we've preached, let him be accursed. As if one occurrence or one proclamation wasn't sufficient, he amplified it one more time. Verse number 9. Though we or an angel from heaven, if any man preach any message, any gospel other than that which you've received, let him be accursed. No wonder the timelessness of that message, the uniqueness and singularity of it, still calls us to the highest plateau of the perfection which God has established the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul quickly after that said these words in verse 10, For do I now seek to persuade men? The pleasing of men is often such a tantamount activity to preach what men like to hear, to preach what the audience wants to hear, to preach what men like to have preached to them, things that are soft to the ears, even softer to the behavior. By and large, men don't like to be made uncomfortable, do they? They don't like to have their toes stepped on. They don't like to be told, you need to change. They want to hear what's smooth. That sounds like Isaiah's words of the long ago, doesn't it? In which even in that ancient day, the people didn't like what Isaiah preached. They said, speaking to us smooth things. Isaiah 30 verse 10 However, smooth things won't cleanse, will it? Smooth things won't present the truth of God. You'll notice here, beginning in verse number 11, we come to appreciate interestingly the nature of this gospel that Paul defended. This gospel, this one gospel of which he had just introduced, he said it's certified. Isn't it interesting? We use that word certified quite often. Experts from Nashville come and they certify our x-ray machines at the hospital. Experts come and they certify the food, the Food Drug Administration does, that we eat. It has a stamp of approval on it. You and I appreciate a certified gospel. It has heaven's stamp of approval on it. Not men's stamp of approval, for that does no good, but it does have God's. Isn't it great that you and I can go to the grocery store and have certified bread, certified water, but something even better than that is the certified gospel, isn't it? That gospel that's certified, Paul quickly makes an obvious defense of its nature and character. The language in verse number 12 is, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This gospel is so rich, so sweet, so rare, so pure. In many ways, human hands never touched it. Its doctrine didn't come from man. It's not man whose ideas are represented in it. Perhaps in powerful character, we can appreciate from ages past the principles of those Old Testament prophets may well be so appropriate here. What was it God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse number 9? Did He not say on that occasion as it respected that message that Jeremiah was to preach, My words I've put in your mouth. Jeremiah didn't preach what he thought, what he felt, what he perceived to be the best message of the day. He preached what God gave him to preach. Was it that also true of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 8? On that occasion, God called and commissioned Isaiah, and he proverbially touched his tongue, his lips with a burning coal, and gave him the message to preach. Today, isn't it sweet that we have then this similar message, and just like the Galatians needed to be reminded, this false doctrine that these fellows are bringing your way, it's not the true unadulterated gospel of God. It's a perverted message. That means it's contaminated. It's not pure and whole. Maybe this would be the proper time to pause for a reflective lesson or at least a practical application. Isn't it still amazing, genuinely amazing, to reflect on the fact that the God of heaven authored and put in place a message that can meet the needs of every age in every country for all of time? That's truly astounding. The human family, we often come up with new and improved things, a new way of doing things that often is purported to be better, a new approach to things that's often based on technology or otherwise that honestly is thought to be improved and better. There can never be an improvement to the gospel. It was given once for all time for all nations. Be we in a civilized western country like America or a developing country like somewhere in Africa or perhaps in Southeast Asia. They need the same gospel stated the same way that you and I do. That still is really an amazing thing, isn't it? Among all other things, doesn't that help us appreciate that singular message highlights the fact this book again was written by one far higher than any man written by one far superior, far more wise, and far more knowledgeable. Perhaps that lesson is echoed in words like these. But some might be quick to say, as you look at words like this one, verse number 7 of Galatians 1, "...which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ." Amazing, isn't it? That that same gospel is the very one the Galatians had received. It's the very one that thus was directly provided to them through the preaching of Paul and other inspired individuals of the first century era. And thus it's that same gospel timelessly needed throughout all the efforts and arenas until the end of time. Perhaps those lessons I've tried to echo like this. Even in your lifetime and mine, we have faced other supposed gospels. Do you remember some few years ago when the social gospel began to take wings and began to have such an influence in many ways on the various denominations of our land? 
the social gospel. There were those who lifted up the teachings of Jesus and combined it with other things and said, this is truly what the gospel is. It had been hidden or concealed for many ages, but now in openness it is ready to be openly received by the human family. May I ask you to notice, it influenced many a set of creeds for the denominations. It did so as various preachers raced across our land proclaiming the so-called social gospel. We don't seemingly hear as much about that anymore, quite frankly. But nonetheless, it has already reaped a number of benefits in what was set into stone in those creeds of those denominations years ago. Question... Was there really another gospel? Was there something new and improved that awaited God's later revelation? Not according to Paul and not according to the Holy Spirit. What Jesus had asserted and what He had affirmed was still the same message that He had affirmed even centuries ago. This social gospel, even other kinds of reference to it, should always make us leery when someone tells us or we hear them say that there is a new presentation. Of course, you and I well know that that has been a serious sore spot and a great number of issues have developed from it. As you and I think about the denominations of which we're aware, our youngsters in their Sunday morning classes have been studying at some length some of the detailed developments of a number of the denominations. We can just choose a few and give thought. In many instances, some individual made the claim that God had revealed something to him that had not been previously revealed. As he so eloquently, so powerfully spoke of it, some began to accept it, the number began to grow, and the movement became substantial. In many cases, that's exactly what happened. Joseph Smith and those who proceeded to follow him and his so-called golden plates that were discovered somewhere in New York. That's just one example of so many others. As you give thought to all those things with me, notice where that led Paul next. Again, as he defended this one gospel, which was not a combination with the law of Moses, but one gospel of Christ. Up next, he says this in verse 13. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that, beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. In mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again in Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the Lord's apostles saw I none save James the Lord's brother. That's reading through verse 19. Do you hear in that Paul's defense of himself? He openly made the claim to them, I am an apostle of the Lord. I receive my information relative to the gospel by revelation. I didn't go to a school to learn it. I wasn't in fact those who sat at the feet of these apostles to be schooled in it. I received it, he said, by revelation. You'll notice that Paul ranked himself for those other apostles. 
those others of whom we've read in the gospel accounts, although he was born somewhat later, he too saw the risen Lord on that road to Damascus, didn't he? He too met the qualifications of appreciating that he was also a kind or type of an apostle. It brought an element of sadness to Paul, though, in verse 13 and verse 14, when he had to confess that he had wasted the church of God. There was a time in his life when he perceived the church to be a fake, Jesus to be a farce, an imposter. It was not that which it claimed to be, and he openly with aggression pursued and in fact persecuted it. He even had in his possession letters whereby he could arrest or imprison those in Damascus that were Christians. As he made observation of that fact, notice the transformation that occurred in this man. In verse number 15, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. On that road to Damascus and in those days thereafter, you and I can still appreciate the compelling and stirring scene that engulfed Paul's life. Here was one who thought he was doing what was right. He was convinced that this Jesus was not who he said he was. He was convinced at that time in his life the law of Moses was still to be followed and he aggressively sought to do it. He even obtained letters allowing him to imprison these Christians. But on that road to Damascus, that man's life was changed forever. On that road to Damascus, he then realized he was the one that was wrong, not those Christians. He realized he was the one in error, not them. And he had the nerve and he had the audacity to make a change in life, to repent. Sometimes individuals are so resistant to change. We'll do anything but admit we're wrong. We'll do anything but confess that I was the one in error. I'll ridicule you, belittle you, insult you. I'll make any excuse to rationalize what I was and what I believed. Isn't it great to see Paul's honesty? I was wrong. I was in error. Notice again his language in verse 16, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul didn't go up to Jerusalem and ask Peter and the others, is what these folks are saying right? Are these Christians true? He knew on that road to Damascus by what the Lord revealed to him, yes, that way is right. Later in Acts 17, 6, isn't it interesting that set of ideas is called the way. Not a way, not some way, but the way. Do you and I follow the way? It may be in light of that we come to appreciate the bottom point on that slide. In verse number 23, Paul had to face many individuals that he formerly had known in life. This description is given. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. Imagine how Paul must have felt as he confronted someone who formerly had been his strongest supporter because he preached the law of Moses and he preached the way of life that formerly had been underneath that way. He had ridiculed Christians and sought to discredit that way. Now he confronts that same person, that same man again, who is still a stalwart mosaic defender 
Paul now is a preacher of the gospel. That man says, what happened to you? You were once such a strong supporter of the way that's right, and now you have fallen aside. What convinced you? What changed your mind? What brought you into this way of thinking? When you've enjoyed listening, as Paul explained to that man, what changed his life, when you've enjoyed being one who nearby could understand and hear the earnestness and power in Paul's language, maybe in light of that, we're prepared to come to the closing thought of our lesson this evening. Two very brief observations to close our lesson. We looked at one lesson and how great it was, the uniqueness and singularity of the gospel. But you'll notice Paul makes a very interesting statement. He states in verse number 15, it's about his own calling. We live in an age and in a, day, in a day when so many make reference to their calling. God called me. Quite often, as you listen to their explanations and descriptions, the means by which they refer to this calling is very perplexing, confusing, intriguing. They refer to being called by experiences, happenstances, occurrences in life. Sometimes it seems to have little, if anything, to do with anything that appears religious. How was Paul called? Verse 15 says he was called by the grace of God. 2 Timothy 2.1 says God's grace is in Christ. And Galatians 3 verses 26 and 27 says that we're in Christ when we're baptized. Paul was called by virtue of the blessed news, the message of the gospel. And that gospel means good news. Glad tidings. Is there any better news than that? Any greater tidings or message than that? Today, those who claim a calling in some very strange or abstract way have missed the simplicity. They've missed the thoroughfare and the greatness of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe beside that point, notice that last observation. I alluded to it just a moment ago, but that change wrought in Paul. That is something, in a way, that's in principle demanded of every individual. When a person reaches that age of accountability, knowing wrong from right, knowing of the plan of salvation, it does take nerve and it takes courage to walk down an aisle and say, I am a sinner. I have been guilty of things that are not right. I want to change. To admit that one has been guilty of error, that kind of courage is, need, is needed by all of us. Even later in life, even after we become a Christian, we may find ourselves having slipped into an activity that's no longer good, that's not appropriately directed, that has led us astray from the simplicity in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. It too takes nerve, doesn't it? To come before brethren and say, I have been mistaken. I have failed in this regard or that. I have set a poor example in this manner or that. Paul changed. But notice the glory housed in him. That glory wasn't due to him. It was due to the one who changed him. It was due to the one who metamorphosized his life and brought him into the kind of individual that he now could be. That same kind of principle applies to you and me today. You and I must change as well. The New Testament uses the word repent to describe that. Repentance, a change of mind that manifests itself in a change of heart and life. 
this very night as we think about the greatness of this opening chapter of Galatians, maybe as we summarize some of it, we again can do so in these interesting words. Tonight we've seen an introduction to the Galatian letter, a bit about geographically where it's located and the kind of individuals to whom Paul was writing. But first and foremost, might we also note this, there was but one gospel. The gospel can't be meshed with, synthesized with, combined with any other message, for if you do, you destroy it, you pervert it, you contaminate it. But the other thing of note is this. These Galatians had as quickly left the gospel that they had accepted. It may be you and I know of individuals like that today. Individuals that once were so strong defenders in their nature of faith, but no longer are they. They've left the faith. They left it. They've abandoned it. Oh, if only they could come back to their first love. They can. May we pray that they shall and may we work that they might. This very night in this audience, there might be someone who needs to make a public statement, coming back to your first love or to begin your walk with Jesus this very night. Brother Jonathan has chosen a song of encouragement. We're going to sing that together as we stand in a moment. And as we do that, consider it a time of exhortation, a time of encouragement. Don't think that folks will look down upon you. They'll celebrate with you. They'll rejoice with you because you can be reinstated if that's the case in life to a former state of faithfulness. But if you've never been in that state, why not tonight? Why not let this very evening, the 4th of August, 2013, be a fantastically changed day for you? We do read that we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you need a mind renewal tonight, a transformation of heart and mind, why don't you, why don't you come if you would while together we stand and while we sing?